Okay. Good morning, everybody. We'll get the class going here. This is the uh, Theology 2 class. And uh, if you got your handout, uh, we're still trucking slowly through this handout. We will be on page 11. Bottom of page 11. Um, before we carry on, though, let me open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for the word preached this morning and the word that just stirs and sits in our hearts and stirs us to conviction, um, uh, conviction of truth and uh, conviction of purpose. And just pray, the Lord, that we would continue to turn our eyes to you as our warrior, um, our warrior king in the midst of this world and life, that, uh, that we would be emboldened and encouraged, strengthened to carry forth the duties that you have called us to, um, knowing that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us and that you are with us every step of the way to protect us and to keep us um, physically and spiritually. And so we just thank you for the many ways you fight with us and for us, um, the many battles that go unseen that you have fought for us and, and win for us, and the many battles we know that we you are with us engaged in. Uh, we give you all honor and glory for every victory, and we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are just still working through um, our soteriology, that is our study of salvation and all the um, looking at all the different um, sides and aspects and facets of the diamond of salvation. So we've been covering a lot of ground. Uh, Josh, over the last couple of weeks, has covered a lot of territory. So I just want to start off first by just opening the floor up if anybody's had any questions burning in the bosom over the last couple of weeks, uh, things that you've thought through or thought about over the course as we've talked about. Oh, we've, we've talked about, I mean, anything's game, open game, but, uh, you know, we've talked about election. We've talked about calling. We've talked about repentance and faith. We've talked about union with Christ and justification. All those are very big, deep topics. <clears throat> and uh, so does anybody have any questions or anything about any of that? got a question for you if nobody else has a question. I will extract discussion from you. <laughs> okay, here's my question, unless anybody speaks up. I'm going to put three words on the board. Can you guys help me identify the difference? That's a terrible marker. The difference between these three words. These are all words that relate to salvation. We, we talked about this one. I'm not sure how much Josh talked about the other ones and, and how they relate, um, but these all talk about God's role in our salvation, but from a different angle. 
So what would you say, what is election? Okay, this would be review because Josh did teach you this. What is election referred to in the Bible? We do not have a choice. Not quite. Well, let, me, let me just ask you this way. What do you mean by that? We do not have a choice. Okay, I'm going to disagree kindly and gently with you on that. Okay. Yeah, Levi? I thought it was the uh, idea of God has chosen some for time to be saved by Christ. Yeah, so election refers to, okay, remember we talk, when we talk about this aspect of salvation, we're talking about from God's perspective. Okay, so Peggy, you were talking a little bit about from our perspective. The Bible talks from two different perspectives, and sometimes we have to be clear in which perspective of salvation we're talking about, God's perspective or ours. So from man's perspective, yes, there's an ask, there's an point in time in your conversion where you choose to follow Christ. We see this all throughout the Gospels, and a man makes a choice. When Jesus called the disciples to follow him, Peter, John, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John chose to get out of the boat and follow him. So there is an aspect of human responsibility in salvation. But when the Bible talks about election, we're talking about God's choosing who he will save. Pure and simple. That is when you see God's talking about, we see this all throughout the Old Testament. There's a, when God's choosing of Israel, um, every aspect of God showing grace and mercy, as we see in Exodus, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. God sovereignly chooses to show His mercy and His grace to whom He wants to. And the aspect of the word sovereign, when we talk about sovereign grace, is that He is not under compulsion to do it. He does it because of who He is, but He is not compelled by any external force to say, oh, well, because Tyson did this, I will choose him. God does it because of His own will, because of His own choice. He chooses. If you say, well, that seems unfair. Well, we don't want what's fair. We do not want what is fair. If we get what's fair, then we will all be in hell right now. That is what is fair. Because we have all rebelled against God. There is no neutrality in any of us. There is nothing inherent in any of us, any person in the whole world, that would make God go, oh, you know, I like him better. I like her better. I'm going to choose him. I'm going to choose her. You know, she's not as bad as this one. or what? A, no. None of that. God chose to create us. We didn't have a choice in that. God chose to start with Adam and Eve. We didn't have a choice in that. They didn't have a choice in that. God chose to take Abraham, a pagan, from the land of Ur. He didn't choose anybody else from the land of Ur. He chose Abraham, this pagan guy, nomadic dweller. Hey, I want to make a nation out of you. Okay. I want you to go to this land. Okay. Why not? Why not as his nephew, Lot, because God chose. And then out of Isaac, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Okay? And then he had a bunch of kids. And then it's I'm going to make a nation out of you guys. So God, you see God's choosing hand all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the history, and we see it in the New Testament as well, in reference to God choosing who he will save. What about predestination? Anyone take a... What do we... 
what do we mean when we see the term predestination? Uh, determined outcome is always going to happen. Yeah. Like yeah. I think that's a great nuance. So um, choosing or if you want the, the, the nuance, predetermining an outcome. So in the scheme of salvation, right, God has chosen who he will save. And then when the Bible talks about predestination, it is God ordering, ordaining, predetermining the outcome. So he chooses, chooses someone for salvation. He then predetermines the outcome. He makes it happen. He brings about all the orders of events in history that bring it happen. We see the word predestined, um, uh, proorizo in the, in the Greek. Uh, we see it using Acts chapter 4, when it says that God predetermined, predestined, that Jesus would die at the hand of Herod and the Gentiles. Okay, So we see very explicit language used there that God brought about salvation through predetermining the events of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Pharisees rising up against Jesus and crucifying him. So you see explicitly, but then you see this verb also used in Romans 8.28. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay? So then foreknow, our last word here. Well, what does this word mean? Okay, so sometimes people will define it, as Levi mentioned, as this idea, I would, I, would, I would use the word foresight for what you described there, that this God knows what's going to happen. Is that what, kind of what you were saying? Yeah, he's seen what's already happened. Seen what's already happened, okay. Any other, any other stabs at it? So we've got two different answers. One is this uh, uh, body of knowledge, which is kind of what Levi was referring to, this idea that God knows something that's going to happen. And then we have the idea that um, God knows, has a relationship with people. So look at Romans 8.28 if you don't already have your Bibles open. Open up there. And let's see what Romans 8.28 says. See if it'll help us solve which one of these is the reference. Romans 8.28 in verse 29. So it says, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then here's our verse. For those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. So which, based just on that phrase, with the word whom being emphasized, are we talking about a body of knowledge or people? I'm talking about people. It's not what he foreknew. It is whom he foreknew. And so the idea there behind foreknowledge is not that God looks down the corridor of time and sees all things, which, of course, he can. He's, God is outside of time. He's not constrained by it. Time is a creation of his. So, of course, he knows the end from the beginning, but not because he looks down and sees what's going to happen. 
Now, if you go to Isaiah chapter 45, we see that God knows all things because he declared the end from the beginning. God has ordained all things that come to pass. But when the Bible talks about foreknowledge, particularly in Romans 8.28, God, before time began, choosing whom he will save, predetermining how that will, salvation will come about because he wants to enter a relationship with somebody. God foreknows. It's uh, uh, in the Greek, this prognosko. There's two different words for knowing in the Bible. Um, there's the verb for knowing knowledge, but then there's a word for in the Greek that's used in this one that talks about knowing somebody intimately. So we'd often, maybe you've heard this before, like in the Old Testament, right, when Adam knew Eve, right? That's the Bible's, uh, you know, uh, dis, uh, discretionary term for physical intimacy, okay? This here, though, is talking about intimate relationship when we say no. God foreknows people. He chooses before time to enter into a relationship with us, with those whom he's going to save. So that's the kind of nuanced, you come across these words all the time in the Bible. God chooses, God the elect. We talk about the elect. We come across predestination in the Bible. We come across foreknowledge. And it all is kind of under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and salvation, God's choosing whom he will save. Um, but we don't always you know, parse the nuance of each term. So again, just I love that illustration of the salvation diamond. It's all talking about salvation, but it's just different facets on the diamond that just like, oh, that's really nice. I like how that scintillates. That is very, very, very pretty. So that's just kind of as you read your Bible and you come across those words, hopefully that gives you a real nice, simple way of understanding uh, those different words and what they're trying to get across. All right, any questions about that topic? This topic sometimes can be a hard one. Sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow for different reasons. Let me just ask this. I'll just extract more discussion out of you. Why is this sometimes a hard pill to swallow? Why is this such a hard thing for us to um, reconcile, come to terms with? There are, there are those who would allege that God is capricious and this would have the appearance of playing into that. Okay. Yeah, this idea that some people think that this kind of teaching um, makes God appear capricious, okay, that he is just cold and that he just is mean and cruel. Well, why doesn't he choose other people for salvation? Seems unloving. How would you respond to an objection like that? I think your response was really good before when you said you don't want what's fair. First of all, he's God, so he can do what he wants. Mm -hmm. But also, you don't want him to do what's fair because that would really kind of seal your own fate then. Mm -hmm. Any other ways you guys might respond? Yeah, I have a problem with that stuff because it tends to indicate uh, future is set. 
But God is a God of love, and love demands a free will response, and it tends to argue against free will. Okay. Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit before, Joel. There's a, there is a balance in Scripture that um, sometimes the tension we feel is, okay, if God's sovereign, then where is the will of man involved in this? And the Bible presents both sides of the coin, that um, God is completely sovereign over all things and has ordained all things from the, you know, as Isaiah 45 says, that He has ordained, declared the end from the beginning. Um but at the same time, man is responsible for his choices, and he has a will. Now, we talk about what does the Bible say when we talk about free will? You know, how does the Bible define our will? Because nobody is um, completely self-autonomous like God is. God can do what He wants. I can't do whatever I want. Right? And we do, basically, God, and I would define will this way. I mean, God is... God is uh, God always acts in accordance with his characteristics and attributes. So in one sense God doesn't have he can't act apart from who he is. That makes sense. Like we understand God to be love. God can't not be that. God is uh, uh, just. He can't not be that. God can't be tempted. He he doesn't sin, right? So there's things God doesn't do because it doesn't accord with his nature. We also act freely but within our nature. So you have free will, but it's bound by your nature. So if you go to passages like Ephesians chapter 2, which says you are dead in your trespasses and sins, it doesn't mean you don't have a will. It just means you act like the living spiritual zombie dead that you are before you're saved. If you go to John chapter 8, Jesus talks about what it is that looks like to be uh, living your free will life uh, before conversion. He says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. So spiritually, you are uh, a spawn and seed of Satan that you live. He says you live to do his will. We go to Romans chapter six that says before conversion and salvation, before union with Christ, you are enslaved to sin. So yeah, you have a will. It's just enslaved to sin in your nature, which is sinful and corrupt, broken, dead, and so. Apart from God's sovereign and intervening work, as I read from John chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 this morning, there's no will of the flesh, there's no will of the man that can save you, but it is the work of God. Because a dead man can do nothing until he is born again and new life is given to him, which is what Josh talked about in regeneration. So yes, your will is, is involved in the process. God doesn't go against your... Um, God doesn't just make us robots, let me say that. God changes our heart and gives us a new nature. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that. We are a new creation. And out of that new creation, out of that new heart, we respond with our will in faith to God. So both are presented in Scripture. But still salvation is what we would call monergistic one actor, mono, one, ergo, or er, ergistic, this comes from the Greek for work, mono work, one worker. Apart from God, we cannot be saved. Remember that illustration, I, I've shared this before, sometimes we want to present salvation as if you're in the middle of the ocean, and you're drowning, and God, you know, he's the co- here comes the Coast Guard, here comes Jesus, and he throws a life preserver out to you, and all you have to do is grab onto that. Grab onto the life preserver. Grab onto Jesus, and He will save you. Well, the problem is, is that you're not floundering in the water trying to be saved. You're dead 
in the water. You've already died. And God comes and grabs you out of the water. Because if God didn't grab you out of the water, you would never reach for the life preserver. That's the biblical picture of, of it. So this is sometimes a hard truth. And, and one of the reasons why is because it really goes against our pride. It goes against our pride. We think we're better. We think we deserve. We, in our especially Western democratic mindset and thinking, we often choose everything. We choose, we, we appoint people in our government, local, state, federal level. Uh, our whole country is all about autonomy, doing what you want, pursue your life, your dreams. And then you come in here and you say, somebody outside of you and bigger than you is actually in control, and you are not. That grinds against our natural, proud, arrogant inclinations. This is humbling. And you know what Paul's response to people when they struggle with this in Romans chapter 9? He says, who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, that you would question God? Shall the lump of clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? It's silly. But yet this is the way God operates. The one thing we have to be careful about when we talk about this um, and I think Gabe was kind of touching on it a little bit, is there is a wrong thinking that people can fall into with this category, and it's got a big word. We call it equal ultimacy. And equal ultimacy is wrong. As we clear that on the recording and everything, it's wrong. And that's the idea that all of us are just neutral, and before time began, God just looked at everybody he was going to create and went, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, arbitrarily. And that's what we say, that's not fair. That, that is not the biblical picture of God. That is capricious. That is un, not the way God operates. Remember from the beginning, um, God created everything to be good, and we rebelled against Him. And so because of Adam's sin and because of our own sin, we are all under God's wrath and deserving of hell. And in the midst of that whole pool, every single person who has ever existed deserving hell, God said, I'm going to save you. I'm going to show my grace to you. I'm going to show my grace to you. None of us deserve it. He has the, he has the prerogative to choose who he wants. He has the choice. At the same time, God is grieved when the wicked perish. The Bible says that. God does not um, get kicks and giggles. Out of suffering, you know, causing people to suffer in eternity uh, in hell. He is glorified by it because he is exercising his justice and displaying his righteousness and holiness when he does that. But it's not like a, somebody with a magnifying glass frying ants. That's not the way God is. That's not the way Bible portrays him. So there's a lot of things that are often in the Bible that are true that seem to rub against each other. I wouldn't say they're paradoxes, because the definition of a paradox is two things that um, don't uh, seem to agree with each other, but do. Uh, I think oftentimes the things that seem to conflict are actually compatible. They just why the, the reason why they seem to not work together is because our little tiny finite minds trying to think about the way things the way God does. What often happens is we reason from our mind up to God, and we try to make God fit the way we think, is another way to say it. 
Instead, when you study God's Word, you have to be willing to submit yourself to saying, well, this is what God's Word says, and even though that's not the way I think, I need to change the way I think. And that would be what I would call a high view of God's Word. This is the supreme authority, not my way of thinking, right? God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. The Scriptures continually test and push us to conform our thinking in our ways to God's ways, not the other way around. So hopefully that's helpful. It's still a hard thing. You know, there's a lot of people, believers, Christians, genuine, people who are elect, struggle and wrestle with this. And again, there's lots of reasons why it could happen. So if you're talking with somebody or view yourself or somebody who wrestles with this, sometimes there's a good wrestling that goes on and um, just I uh, would encourage you to study the scriptures. Be a good Berean. Test the scriptures. Um, study. Ask more questions. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. Uh, we want to we wanna be able to stand upon the authority of God's word and say, what does it say? The fact is these words are in the Bible and you got to deal with them. So can't escape that. Do not... Um, you know, we want to use highlighters. I like marking up my Bible. Hope you do. But don't use a Sharpie to mark up your Bible. If there's a word you don't like, don't black it out. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Adoption. If any other questions pop up as we talk, jump in and ask it. We got, we've got time. So I want to make time. So adoption. How, this is a sweet, sweet aspect of God's salvation. Uh, how would you, though, guys, before we dump it, jump into this, how would you describe, or how can you describe, there's lots of ways, so there's, no one, just, there's not just one right answer, how can you describe your relationship with God? Intimate. Sorry, say that again, Joel. Intimate. Intimate, that's a good word. Yeah. What else? Compassionate. Compassionate. Strongly connected. Strongly connected. I like it. <coughs> Anything else? Just what we need, right? Foundation. Foundation. What do you mean by that? Okay, so it kind of makes me think of the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, where he talks about those who listen and heed his words will be like someone standing on a rock. Yeah. It's a solid foundation. Um, you, you, you said something else there that I caught, though. But you talked about kind of oneness. Right? That's the whole idea with our union with Christ. There's a supernatural and unique oneness that we have there. And just laboring for the same goals. Okay. So um, almost a cooperation, um, uh, same goals, unified. That kind of goes with the oneness too, but uh, same mind, right? Uh, Philippians 2 calls us to have the same mind as Christ. So in our relationship, we're working towards the same thing. Yeah, what else? Thinking about who God is and how we relate to Him. 
is child. Yep, I'll touch on that some more. He made you. He made you, yeah. Creator, creation, created, creator, and the created. Very good. That's very, I mean, I would just mention that with Romans 9, right? Who are you, oh man, to say this to God? Shall the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? That, talk, that speaks to that relationship we have with God. Lawmaker. A lawmaker and a law, hopefully a biter. <laughs> lawmaker. We'd be the breakers and then hopefully uh, abiding by it too. Okay. Um, you can also maybe with that lawmaker idea, judge. Yeah, or He's the legislator and the judge. He's all the branches of the government. What, what was your other uh, thing? Sid? The one who makes order. Makes order. Oh, yeah. Okay. So how does, that, how does that speak to our relationship, though? Well, I guess it's kind of the idea that things are out of order right now. You know, it's coming back to make things like there should have been, like Adam and Eve. Okay. Yeah. And, like, the idea of Adam and Eve, like, Maybe put that under creator and created just as a sub point, you know, the idea that he's going to reconcile the creation, us, and all created things when he makes all things right. That comes from Romans chapter 8. Um, how about king and subjects? You could even say servants. The Bible talks about us as servants. I prefer the Greek term is doulos. Slaves. I think oftentimes in English Bibles, uh, slaves get softened into bond servant um, because of America's history and, and uh, with uh, slavery of the African people. So I think that's oftentimes they soften it and put servant or bond servant. But the Greek term doulos is slaves. We refer to the slaves as God, as king. We could all, but uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways you relate to the king. We also relate to him as citizens, right? We are citizens of heaven, of a kingdom yet to come. But the idea is, in this relational aspect, is subjection underneath the king. What about Christ? How, what's our relationship look like with Christ, with Jesus? He loves you. Okay. One of love. Bride and groom. Bride and groom. That's good. Ephesians 5. Roman or Revelation too. We relate to him as our mediator. He's our son. He's well, he's not our son, but as we'll talk about, he's our brother. We're gonna talk about that with adoption. This is just a smattering of many of the ways we relate to God. And what, what a point I want to drive home with this is sometimes um, we lack sight of all the ways we relate to God and we get overly focused on one. So, for example, if we were to overly fixate on our relationship to God as our king and citizens and subjects and servants, what would that do to our relationship 
with God? Like, how would we, what struggles would we encounter if we only see God this way? He's unapproachable. Yeah, he's not approachable. That's cold. Fear. Very intimidating, like you're afraid that if you, if you trip up and mess up, you're afraid that he's going to bring all hellfire and brimstone upon your door. Absolutely. Instead of being gracious and forgiving and being like, let me give you a second chance, my child, because I love you. You'd yeah. be too, too scared, too afraid to be human and make mistakes and learn from them through Christ. Yeah, no, you nailed it. Yeah, that's good. Intimidated. Absolutely. Yeah, we would kind of lose sight of the love and the mercy that God has. That wouldn't feel like uh, the father, right? We didn't put that on the board, but father, son, daughter relationship, father, child relationship. I mean, we did say child, I guess, up there, but just the, the other side of the coin there. Um, so I would say sometimes it depends uh, depends on church, the church, but sometimes churches that I would call more reformed in their theology, reformed meaning usually that they talk about words like these. Sometimes in camps like ours where we talk about words like those, we can be guilty of coming and overemphasizing this aspect of our relationship with God. A really good book I would encourage all of you to read. I think we might have it in our resource center. Short book, small, thin, Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. It's a, a real big focus on the end of Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. Take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. Or he said, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So it's a big focus on that aspect of our relationship with Jesus that even though he is king, even though he is holy and righteous and cannot tolerate sin, he's the same one. And actually at the beginning of, of chapter 11, uh, he celebrates and praises God for his sovereignty. So you want to talk about uh, balancing of things in scripture. Chapter 11 of Matthew is awesome because Jesus says, God, I thank you that you have closed the eyes and the ears of these people. He's praising God for hiding the truth of the gospel from people. That's God's sovereignty. But then in the same breath, in verse 28, then he says to everybody listening, come to me, all who are gentle, or come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit. It's like both things are true in Scripture. God's sovereign over salvation, and yet at the same time, He is opening the door to those to respond, for people to respond. Okay? So, we recognize this as a temptation. That's why I think the sweetness of adoption comes in. Adoption is a sweet part of the diamond of salvation that helps us uh, smooth out the edges when we are only viewing God this way or only as a creator and created, or the lawmaker and the judge, right? All these things are true, but we don't want to miss sight of the tenderness of our relationship with God, which is what adoption brings into the picture. Adoption 
It means this. Here's a quote from Heath Lambert's book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling. He says, Adoption means that those who possess repentant faith in Jesus Christ are brought into God's family as his own sons and daughters. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew, in their biblical doctrine, systematic theology book, it says, Adoption is the legal declaration by the divine judge that the justified one has been made a member of the divine judge's family. In your handout, the definition there is the believer's placing as a son, emphasizing the believer's rights and privileges in his new position in Christ. So even just within those definitions, we see a lot of of building upon the theology we've already studied, justification and also union with Christ. You see that just kind of embedded there in the definition. Um, Adoption obviously implies that we are not naturally born into God's family. We don't originally belong there. So how would then does the Bible describe us and our family before adoption? Someone read John 8, 44. Someone turn there. Read John chapter 8, verse 44. Okay, so what's our, before we were adopted, what's our family like? Who's our father? The devil. You are of your father, the devil. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in this, but I think it stands by implication for all unbelievers. What's our will? What do we like to do? Basically, you were born into a world of sin, and you had no choice in that matter. But um, sometimes it's like you want to petition against God, and you want to rebel a little bit. But the thing that I've come to know is, as many times as you do, the louder he speaks, and the more heart, the more, the more louder he tries to get your attention. Yeah, that's true. Ephesians chapter 2 also kind of uh, characterizes us this way before adoption. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, which is kind of what you said, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a description of Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Another kind of familial description. We are sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So you have more familial language there. Before we're adopted children of God, we are by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience, following the course of this world, and doing the will of our father, the devil. That's a pretty, pretty picture, isn't it? But the beauty of adoption is that we have been delivered from that. Uh, what makes adoption, you think about it in our just earthly context, what makes adoption always a heartwarming and beautiful thing? He, he adopts you by accepting you as just come as you are, broken, beaten, perfectly 
imperfectly flawed. He accepts you for who you are. Yeah. You just, so you just come. Yeah. You just come to him and he just welcomes you with open arms. Some of you are involved in foster care and maybe some of you in the room that I don't know of may have adopted as well, but um, what is it that's just so beautiful about the act of adoption? No Jan? Completes our family. Completes family. What are you going to say? No longer an orphan. No longer an orphan. Fulfills like the desire for someone to have someone else in their life as well as like both sides mm-hmm. receive that fulfillment of joining a family. Yeah. Hey, Gabe. You know, if you kind of think of it like kids picking teams at recess, you know, pick the, the best. And when it comes to adoption, like you're not, you're, you're picking up out of typically out of brokenness. Mm-hmm. Real heartache, mm-hmm. and uh, but choosing that brokenness all the same instead yeah. of dust and the brightest. Yeah, this uh, it's not a one to one illustration. Um, moder- you know what we do here on earth with adoption and fostering, but uh, you know those who need adopted didn't choose to be in that place for whatever reason the suffering that they've gone through, loss of a parent or abusive parents and loss of privileges over their child, whatever the situation is, the, ch- the child didn't choose that. And so here you have somebody coming in, like Gabe was saying, choosing, electing to put their love on somebody, not because of anything meritorious in them. Like Gabe was saying, it's not like a soccer team where, well, this kid can do this better than this kid. So I'm going to choose... I hope that's not the way adoption happens. I don't think it usually is that way. But um, choosing to set your love on somebody, not because they deserve it, but because they're needy. And it's in God's original order and plan for people to be a part of a family and to love sacrificially on that person despite all their weaknesses, despite their sin struggles, and to say, I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to give you all the rights and privileges of being in my family. And we're going to love you. And you also are going to learn to love us as well. That's just a small taste. I, every time I think about people who do fostering or adoption in our church, it's always a portrait of the gospel, beautiful portrait of the gospel. Anybody, can you guys think of some adoption situations in the Bible? Some biblical examples of adoption? There's a few that like don't quite fit the exact label like we would think today, but are close enough. So if you think of some situations. The first to come to mind would be Rahab to me. Rahab? Okay. So in what way was she adopted? Not an Israelite. Yeah. Welcome Yeah, exactly. That's a good one. Rahab? Adopted into the nation of Israel. What else? Talking about being engrafted? Are you talking about Gentiles being? I'm just talking about like examples, like kind of like what we see today, you know, when somebody adopts a child into their family. What do we see any biblical examples of that in the Old Testament, New Testament, where somebody comes along and adopts a child? Biblical illustrations. How about the person who led Israel out of Egypt? Moses. 
Yeah. He was adopted in one sense, right? By the Pharaoh's, what was it, uh, his daughter? So here comes this baby floating down the river. She knows the law or the command that went out from Pharaoh to kill all Hebrew boys under the, was it under the age of three, or firstborn anyways. Any Hebrew, boys, Hebrew baby boys born need to be killed, thrown in the Nile, killed in whatever way. So here she is seeing, being confronted with, she knows it's a Hebrew baby. She chooses to take him in, take care of him. God awesomely ordained and worked it so that his mom, Moses' real mom, birth mom, could take care of him and nurse him in his early years. But there you go, Moses getting all the privileges and love and care of somebody in a high position of authority and affluence in Egypt at the time. Mephibosheth, anyone guys remember who Mephibosheth is? Who's Mephibosheth? Jonathan's crippled, lame in his legs, son. After Saul and Jonathan die in battle, David, in an expression of his love for Jonathan, says, who can I show love to on behalf of Jonathan? So I say, Jonathan's not here anymore. He died. How can I love him in his memory? And so look at Mephibosheth. So he takes Mephibosheth into his home and provides for him, gives him blessing, gives him land and stuff like that. So um, how about uh, Esther? Esther is the uh, niece, right? Remembering all the familial relationships correctly, of Mordecai, and her parents are dead, and Mordecai takes her in, takes care of her. And then this is one that, again, like doesn't quite fit the label but uh, of what we think of usually today, but Jesus and Joseph. And Jesus, Joseph is legally Jesus' father, but not biologically. And so Joseph took care of him and raised him. So there's some sweet examples there in the Bible, but let's just talk a little bit more about some of the, uh, an explanation, biblical explanation of adoption. One key text um, that you see in your handout is Romans 8, 14 through 16. If you want, uh, it's there in your handout, so you don't need to go there in your Bible. Uh, but Romans 8, 14 through 16, um, well, actually 17. Can I, will somebody volunteer to read that? Thanks, Tom. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, also heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. No. What are just some things? Let's just put on our observational glasses, okay? We're just going to look at this text, these three verses. What are some things we learn about uh, uh, adoption? What are some things that stand out to you? Just some generic things that you see there in the text that we learn about adoption from this text. 
There's a lot of things. I mean, throw out whatever you see. Yeah, I hear the air. Okay, yeah, there's an inheritance involved. You're an, you become an heir when you're adopted. We'll talk about what that inheritance looks like in a little bit. Assurance from the Holy Spirit. So you're kind of looking at verse 16 there. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, the Holy Spirit has a big, significant role in the adoption. Safe and secure. Safe and secure, okay. I think I, you can come from that maybe from verse 15. If you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So when you're adopted, you receive the spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, um, that helps us cry out, Abba, Father. So instead of being afraid of the punishment of sin, being afraid of enemies against God's people, we don't have a spirit of fear anymore, but one of faith and hope. Trust and love, eh? Okay, I would say you could get that from verse 17, provided that we suffer with him. We are heirs with Christ and children if we suffer with Jesus so that we may also be glorified with him. So there is an aspect of when you become a son or daughter of the king, you live a new way. You live in light of that identity. You live just like uh, my kids, you know, in the house. We've got household rules. And when you're in my house uh, as my child, they have certain rules you got to follow. You got to live like a smith in our household. The co-heirs with Christ would indicate our he is our brother. Yeah, co-heirs with Christ. So we'll look at another passage too that says it even more explicitly in, in Galatians. But uh, yeah, there's, there's an aspect there where we talked about um, our wrote it somewhere. Brother, we're a brother with Christ. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of neat things here just in this one verse to talk about adoption. It's, it's, it's something that is, um, it's, and we'll talk about this when we get to assurance of salvation in the coming weeks, because these are really overlap and intertwined with each other. Um, but the adoption that God does is an objective reality. Objective meaning it is true no matter how you feel about it. It's true. But there is a subjective aspect of it that the Holy Spirit testifies to your heart and soul. And so there's feelings. Sometimes when we sin, we struggle sometimes with our assurance of salvation. Right? We say, man, how can I be a believer if I'm struggling this way? I've been struggling with this sin for so long. Or how could I do that sin if I'm a believer? Am I really saved? Right? That's, that's subjective. That's emotions that are at play. But that doesn't mean you're saved or not saved. Your feelings don't indicate reality always, right? Our emotions are fickle things at times. Sometimes they're helpful dashboard indicators, and sometimes they're, you know, it's that check engine light on that you just need to ignore. But our security of our salvation is an objective fact. What Jesus did on the cross 
and God applying that to us is an objective reality. Same thing with adoption. Adoption is an re- objective reality, but the Spirit, in a, in a subjective way, bears witness with our spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. The Spirit does produce a realization in us of our sonship, our daughtership in Christ, and an attitude of sonship. It's interesting, though, you know, in verse 14, uh, I'd say this, another thing, observation, is that our relationship with the Father, right? We cry, Abba, Father. That's huge. That's profound. Maybe it should make you think about Matthew chapter 6, Luke 11, when Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, and He first starts with, Our Father. Like that, in the Old Testament, God is not referred to as Father very often. And you, when it is, it's usually in a national context that God's the Father of the nation of Israel. But this individualized, personalized address of calling God Father, and this term, Abba, is this one, a very endearing term, like Daddy. Very endearing, very sweet, very intimate, very near God term. We cry, Abba, Father. And so that is profound. Our relationship, when we are adopted, our relationship changes with God. One from enmity, hostility. Do you understand when before you're saved, you are actually under God's wrath. You are an enemy of God, as Romans 5 says. We are not reconciled. We are not on good terms. God is angry actively because of our sin. But all that's changed. And God is, when you're justified, when you have that legal declaration of right standing with God, God doesn't just leave it there. We're not just like, all right, you're good now. You know, go do what I want. Go do my commands. Or I'm not angry at you anymore. Now go obey. That's not the end of the salvation story. It's like, we're on good terms now. Christ has paid for your debt. And now when I look at you, I see Christ's righteousness. You need to go out and obey. But guess what? You're going to be in my family now. And so much so that you can call me dad. Not just your righteous and just judge. Not just your king, but I am your father. You can come and talk to me anytime. You can approach my throne with confidence and boldness because of what Christ has done. Oh, well, don't have time. I don't want to jump into this question yet, but uh, you can think about it this week. So we'll, we'll finish up with adoption next week and then move on into sanctification, which is going to be a huge one. Sanctification is going to be big. But uh, with this question, though, when you see this idea of the Spirit um, bearing witness with yours that you're a child of God, the question I would say is, how do you know, how do you know if you're, hearing the Holy Spirit testifying that you're a child of God. How do you know if you are a child of God or not? Think about that. Well, this is what we'll pick up with and talk about next week on Sunday. How do you know if you're a child of God? How do you know if you're adopted? How do you know if that's that, that uh, liver quiver that you're feeling is the Spirit or not? And we'll, talk, we'll end up there. Any questions? we got four minutes. Any questions about anything? Yeah. Yeah, I do have one that I've been I'm going to try and say this as succinctly as possible. It's probably not going to come out that way. But thinking about adoption and thinking about wanting to lift someone out of brokenness mm-hmm. and wrap them in. So you say, well, we're selection of choosing. Um, 
foster parents or adoptive parents, a lot of times, I mean, they might be motivated by their love to rescue. I, w- I want to adopt them all, mm-hmm. to help them all, but we're limited in our the number of beds we have, we're limited mm-hmm. the size of our house, the size of the car we drive, or whatever. We're limited. Mm-hmm. But God is not limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, his arm is not short. I mean, he, so, and then with that in mind, also trying to wrap my head around, okay, Second Peter 3, 9, he is not wanting or he's not wishing or some translation might say he's not willing that any should perish but that everyone would come to repentance mm-hmm. it's like so first of all that context is about believers okay. in peter when it, when it says god is not wishing that any should perish that's talking about believers and god being patient with all believers to come to salvation it's not talking about the whole world now i do believe that god loves all people in the world Right? He's there created. We are image bearers. We have inherent intrinsic value because we are made in God's image. God does not look at anybody as worthless or anything like that. But let me tell you this. If I were to say to each and every one of you here, I love you. But then again, I love everyone. <laughs> what does that do to my love? What does that, how does that make you feel? I love you. But, you know, God tells me to love everybody. If I say that to my wife, honey, Candace, I love you. But I also love everybody else. <laughs> Joel will come to my funeral. I appreciate that. Yeah. So love that doesn't have some kind of discrimination in, in a sense is not really love at all. Right? If I say that I love everybody, then my love is kind of meaningless. Now, I think that God talks, the Bible does have different terms for love, and God does have different degrees of love. Uh, we see this uh, particularly in display in John chapter 17 during Jesus' high priestly prayer when he says, God, I do not pray for the whole world. He says that, but I pray for these. I pray for these disciples right here. And then he says, and I pray for all those who will believe because of their testimony. So Jesus himself is very specific in the application of his love, but at the same time can love everybody else in a different way. And so I think, you know, when we talk about, I think I was extrapolating what your question was, if God is not limited in his resources and he loves everybody, why doesn't he save everybody? And if God saved everybody, then his love would not be as sweet, as precious, as good, And also, he wouldn't have been an opportunity to display all of who he is, which is just, righteous. And so when you go to Romans chapter 9, we see a difficult truth. But some some people, God has not chosen to save in order that he would display his wrath and his justice and his holiness for his glory. Everything that he does is for his glory. In his choosing to love some and not choosing to love others in the same way, in that sweet, foreknowing, intimate, relational way. But yet God is still gracious to even unbelievers, right? He causes the sun to shine and the rain to come down. He gives good, common grace and gift gifts. All Every good gift that we have is from above, even unbelievers. So God is kind and loving, 
but he has a special discriminatory love for those whom he saves that he does not show on everybody else, even though he has infinite resources and power at his disposal. Does that help answer? Yeah. Yeah. I was really looking for some way that it's like, if somebody, if somebody cornered me and tried to get me to explain the second Peter reference, I'd be like, uh, no. He's talking about believers. That helps. If you go to the context of that verse in chapter, you'll see that he's talking to the church, talking about believers there, not talking about the whole world. Now, there's text that's, like I said, mentioned. There are texts in the scriptures that talk about God's, in general, desire that uh, uh, people would, that he doesn't delight in the in the destruction of the wicked, um, that he loves all people. And again, those are all things that are true, and we hold all of scripture to be true. We hold all truths at the same time. We can't just pick our favorite verses and neglect the ones that you know challenge us. But I think sometimes the verses that challenge us, uh, us, we are often interpreting them incorrectly. So the challenge is just because of us and not because of God. Um, and things that seem to conflict are actually often compatible, even though our small brains have a hard time with it. You know, like Genesis 50-20, right? When Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Both those things are true. You are responsible for the evil things you have done, but God sovereignly ordained for it to happen. How do those things don't seem to reconcile, but they they're both are true. And we have to hold on to them. I don't like it. It's tension. It's, it's uh, ugh. Yeah. God's bigger than us. That's why we struggle with it. We have little finite pea brain sized brains, you know? So God is bigger than we are. Can't put them in a box. We could try. But then we usually fall into error when we do that. So, all right, it's we're done. So, if you got a question, you got to hold on to them till next week, or talk to me later.